Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Hey there, welcome to today's program. We've got the educators panel on collaborative problem solving at school today, but we just finished uh, a program, the newest program, Issues in Children's Mental Health. And um, boy, if, if you like this program, you've got to listen to that one too. It's only once a month, that program. This one's every week, of course. Um, but my guest today was Dr. George Holden, who's a uh, professor, developmental psychology at Southern Methodist University. And boy, what a uh, uh, wonderful advocate for kids he is and what a persuasive voice he is um, against corporal punishment, which, as he pointed out, is still legal and practiced in 19 states throughout United States of America, not a uh, number to be proud of, to be sure. Um, the latest statistics that he reported on, um, 230,000 incidents a year of kid, kids getting hit at school as a uh, form of discipline. Um, you know, often big numbers are uh, used to impress, but I am completely unimpressed by that number and saddened to know, well, I think I knew that number already, but sad that we're still hitting kids at school 230,000 times a year. What's that about? And especially in certain states, um, uh, especially those that are sort of close to the Gulf of Mexico, or border the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, I would blame the oil spill, but uh, this was going on way before the oil spill. Uh, well, that's not our topic for today. I think that our educator panel members are slowly going to trickle in today. You know, things get busy at schools right around this time. Uh, but we do have one parents panel member with us already. Carol, how are you? Hello, I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I am good. You may have the good fortune. Actually, things are pretty busy at school at around noon, aren't they? And that's the that's what time it is for you right now. It does get that way a little bit around noon, yep, but I made it. <laughs> you made it, and we're glad to know it. We we do not have Tom or Nina yet, but I'm sure that we will. My, I know that Nina is going to join in, though she has to leave early, and um, I'm hoping that I haven't heard from Tom that he can't join in. So hopefully we'll get Tom as well. Um, 
Anything you want to report on today? I do have an email that I want the uh, different members of our panel to respond to because it's a uh, tough issue, and especially now that we have three principals on our educators panel, um, one that principals have to deal with frequently, but um, maybe we can wait until Nina and Tom are on if they're going to get on um, Anything you want to report on in terms of collaborative problem-solving in your school over the last month since we last had the educators panel? Well, I have had the opportunity already to work with some students on some plans, some students who have been in the school, you know, for a year or two and are already kind of familiar with the way that I work, and some students who are new who really don't know what to expect when coming into the principal's office for the first time, and even some really young children that... uh, I could maybe use some some advice from some of the other educators on on uh, working with some of the really young you know kindergartners who sometimes language being able to solve the problems through language is a bit tricky for them. Well, let's start with those. Given that we don't have Nina or Tom yet, what what okay. have you been running into with that? Well, I have two two separate little kids who uh, who are both experiencing some fear for school. Um, and and are you know having some pretty challenging behavior. I'm I'm chuckling as I remember some of the um, more interesting episodes that I've been dealing with. One little guy uh, this past week, um, you know, talking about the spectrum of looking bad. He was he was up there on the spectrum. <laughs> Pulled out a few tricks that I hadn't seen before from a five-year-old. Um, but looking past the behavior and trying to get to you know, I know he's just uh, some of it is a battle of wills. He really really, really doesn't want to come to school. And uh, obviously uh, that's a priority. I bet he has his reasons. Yes, he does, and that's the tricky part. That's the part that I'm having a hard time getting to. You know, we've tried to to work through some of this stuff, and and he's been able to tell me that there's been some things he's scared of a little bit. Uh, You know, too many kids is one of them. And and I could see one day I was talking to him in the office here, and, and the bell rang to end recess. And so some of the bigger kids, like grade three, were running past my window and his eyes just went huge seeing wow. these kids. And it kind of showed me, like, he is pretty fearful of some of the other kids and thinking that they're going to run him over or get in his, you know, kind of t- trample him or or he, he just is very, very fearful. And so, and it's, and there's also a big uh, element of being, of uh, separation from his mom is a big issue too. So, hmm. Um, you know, talking with him, it's really hard. It's one of those things where, you know, what can we do about that? And he's really not that interested in, in working on the problem together. He just wants his way, and which is very typical of a five-year-old. You know, they're, he just really is very set that he is not going to come to school. So coming to the part where we brainstorm solutions together is hard because he's not interested in, in finding a solution, really, other than I'm going home. <laughs> well, and that just says that he... Uh, you know, there are kids, there's adults who, of course, have the same issue, that they settle into a solution and they are done. Um, yeah. Often I find it's because um, that's the solution that would give them immediate pain relief. Right. And it's the only solution they can really think of. Um, and perhaps because, and I don't know if that's true in this kid's case, because it sounds like you do have a bit of a bead on his concerns. Um that they don't understand their concerns well enough to know that there are even other options that would address their concerns. This is sort of the fascinating thing. If you don't know what your concerns are, how can you know what range of solutions would address them? You just want to escape. 
you want to avoid, right. and that's why we call it school avoidance or I like school <laughs> avoidance better than school refusal. Uh, avoidance is a rather primitive solution. Um, but it sounds like he is, at least based on what you're telling us, scared of big kids, scared of getting run over. Yeah. I wonder. And even the, even give, the kids in his class, he says there's just too many, too many kids. Fascinating. One of the videos I show at my workshops is of a fourth grader whose big concern is that it's too loud and too crowded in his classrooms, and um, it's causing him to not spend much time in his classrooms because he can't take it. Right. It's too much. And those of us who didn't find too loud and too crowded to be a problem often have difficulty relating to people for whom too loud and too crowded is a problem, but too loud and too crowded is not an uncommon problem. Right. Um, so I'm wondering about loud as well. Um, and, and in this video that I showed during my workshops these days, um, we explore what loud and crowded means to this kid. Um, and it's only through some fairly lengthy exploration of that that we're able to start thinking of solutions. Clearly, this little guy who you're talking about has settled in on one and once again, I find that not only true of some five-year-olds, but also true of many 35- and 45- and 55-year-olds. Um, we've settled in. Yeah. He's settled well, in. And I, and I know that you know, very, very um, people with a lot of experience working with young kids, like some of our EAs and some of our other staff members, you know, have a lot of suggestions, but he's not willing to entertain them because they're not coming. Like you said, he's, he's got his solution in mind, which is to not address the problem. So before, even though I know that there's a, lot, a range of things that we could do, I'm trying to avoid that battle of wills because I've seen it and I've experienced it. <laughs> and this kid, if if I, if I was going to say one one thing about him, he has stamina, <laughs> stamina for his um, his position and stamina for his refusal to to entertain any other possibilities and. Sometimes I just kind of step back and go, I admire your stamina. <laughs> well, he certainly um, apparently feels very st- – let me put this in a way that a dyed-in-the-wool collaborative problem solver would. <laughs> he he has a very strong conviction that his concerns are legitimate. Good for him. Exactly. It's part, it's part that's less <laughs> ideal, and I, I, I admire that in kids. Um, good for them for having the con- the strength of conviction that they have legitimate concerns. Yeah. Um, well, what I'm finding but, interesting is is working with his mother as well because I don't know that I think that um, he has other concerns probably at home as well, um, and I think that I don't know that she has really understands the skills and and how to to help him overcome those things. And so when she is you know, in the in the office with me or in the school and we're, you know, she's observing how I'm doing some of these things, I, I'm i hoping that she's kind of picking up on that as well because I think he's he's been able to enforce his solutions a lot at home. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Well, um, who knows? But that's what I was wondering is... It sounds like maybe you have involved the mother in some of the discussions, or no? 
Yep, yep, for sure. Because there's and lots so what of, you you've know, witnessed what... is him. <laughs> it's interesting. Have you witnessed him having the strength of conviction on virtually all things, or especially on this thing? Well, mostly on this thing. It's only been um, pretty much this. He didn't. Uh, he didn't even come to school actually for quite a while. Um, but when he was here, he was often down at the office, and, and you know the teachers saying he could call home because he was sick, and and now it's kind of evolved into you know total avoidance, where he I think he was allowed to go home a few times, and now it's well if I'm why why skip coming to school and coming home I'll just stay home. So I think he's he's definitely um, trying to 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 challenge that expectation that, that his mom has that he come to school, but I don't think she's really sure how to how to approach it with him. So I'm I'm glad that in some of these situations, you know, she's at school with him and, and trying to get him to separate from her and and you know, she's seeing his reaction to that and uh she kinda looks at me like, I don't know what to do here. So I think it's it's a good as she's the very proud much parent of to together. as the as the proud parent of two previously separation anxious kids. Mm-hmm. And as the proud former separation anxious kid, that's me. That's you. That's me. I know how awful it feels to have a kid who's having difficulty separating. Mm-hmm. And I know how awful it feels to be that kid. And I know as the kid who was previously separation anxious, and this was, of course, a very long time ago, um, how badly I thought adults handled it way back in the day. Yeah. Which was basically the um, throw him into the frying pan of anxiety approach, and he'll get over it. Right. And I can uh, speak firsthand for the fact that uh, they were wrong. We've got another educators panel member on now, but I can't tell if this is Tom or Nina because they both call from the same area code. I'm betting Nina. <laughs> Let's see if I'm right. You're wrong. Oh. Wait a minute. Tom, sorry. How are you, Ross? I'm good. Good to have you on the program. Nice to be here. Um, we missed you last time. It looks like we're going to be missing Nina this time, who I know had to cut out at uh, – 30 minutes in anyways, but um, Tom, how's the beginning of the school year going? It's going well. We've seen a lot of a lot of uh, children coming through the door with uh, some difficulties this year, more than usual. New kids? No, n- new kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just talking about that. Yeah, it's been a, a statewide uh, situation. I, I've heard from people that were just recently at some statewide conferences that for whatever reason, there's been a lot of movement or shifting, and new students are enrolling in districts that have pretty high needs, and it's been uh, interesting how how uh, um, everyone's coping with it because, you know, they come without records or communication sometimes, and it makes it really hard to figure out how to, how to support them. Well, I'm betting you'll see your way through it, but that doesn't sound easy. Yeah, it's it, well. I think it just goes back to you. Just you got to have good conversations with people and find out as much as you can, and and just focus on those relationships. You know, they're everything. So we just keep trying to to listen to other people's concerns and perspectives. I've actually found collaborative problem solving to be almost, in some ways, more helpful with adults than children these last few weeks, mm. because the, the adults 
in order to get the information about new students or students that have shifted around, it, you, you have to rely on the adults to give you the information. So it takes a while to build that. And uh, listening helps, you know? Well, and um, it takes a while to build a relationship with a kid. So it's the new kids who you don't know and don't have a prior relationship with who can be the toughest because the relationship isn't there. Exactly. And that that's the key is that it, it just... Um, uh, having the having the chance to build the relationship with the child while dealing with whatever it is that they're coming through the door with is is a little bit tricky when you don't have kind of the full the full picture. But everything gets clearer. I mean, the first month of school it's always challenging for all schools because even children who came left in one way may come back different based on things that have occurred over the summer. That's so right. I just think it's good for all of us who work with children to remember that the first month of school can be challenging in, in so many ways that are surprising, and it's important to come to school every day, you know, kind of ready to listen and kind of hear their concerns and perspective as they come back, because even a student who had it really good, it may, it may not be going so well. They're all new in the fall is what I'm saying, Ross. And it's and it's really important, even if you had a relationship, that it may have need to be redefined. You might need to take some time and build it back up again. Um, because it is it is a pretty long period of separation. We are just talking about separation, <laughs> and sometimes that uh, that like you said, that first month is um, it's really just a time to be very very patient. Mm. I've got an email for you guys. Ready? Okay. All right. This is this is, this is my uh, contribution to the program today. Uh, this is from a uh, school psychologist, I think. Yes, I'm a school. I'm not going to read it exactly because I don't want to give away where this person's from. Uh, I'm a school psychologist, and I'm going to say in a large urban school district uh, in the central time zone of the United States, at a special education program for high school students who exhibit significant behavior issues. Um, students in this program are frequently on the path to a life in prison. In recent weeks, we have had four students sent to uh, JDC, I think that's the court, for weapons violations at school. I am needing to write FBAs on the students, and I'm feeling rather discouraged. Staff think I'm understanding the situation by finding the root. Staff think I'm understating the situation by finding the root of these behaviors to be a result of impulsiveness and lack of problem-solving skills. I think the staff see the situation more as a morality issue, that no matter how emotionally disabled the student, kids should still be able to understand right from wrong. Kids do well if they can is not flying, in other words. I have not met the students yet and, of course, will be interviewing them as part of the FBA. I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed at the moment, worried that I am appearing to minimize the problem of students bringing weapons to school and, in one case, using one. Do you have any suggestions for getting staff on board and also for working with the students? Although the one who pulled the 45 will not be allowed back at our school, the others with knives in their possession will be. And even in the situation of the former, I will be expected to help write a behavior intervention plan for his next school. Thankfully, that school has a metal detector. Uh, 
Thanks very much for your assistance. Well, we've given no assistance yet, educators panel, but um, who wants to weigh in on this? Well, I had a few thoughts going in my head. You're up. The first one, I guess, was a little bit, I don't want to say sarcastic, but saying that, uh, you know, kids should be able to tell right from wrong. I'm pretty sure if you ask any of those kids, they know that weapons are are wrong. (laughs) But whatever situation is causing them to feel unsafe or or feel the need to have that in their possession as a protective matter or whatever is more important to them than their concern about the rule. So obviously as collaborative problem solvers, we know that trying to understand why those kids have that overwhelming need to protect themselves or to have those things in their possession um, is imperative to, to to solving that problem, whatever that problem might be. Paul, what I, do you think? Well, I was thinking that uh, um, it just sounds to me like there that there's a um, uh, I don't know how to say this nicely. I'm trying really hard to figure out how to word it in a politically correct way. That the, the lenses of the organization need to be addressed to meet the needs of challenging students. That the school system probably wait, you have those little care packages, Ross. You know, with the book and everything. Yep. You might want to send some <laughs> to those folks. Do you know what I'm saying? And I mean that nicely. It's not, but FBA is really. Um, only give us a part of the picture. I think it really sank home for me this summer when when I saw you in Portland again. I've learned that the the complexity of working with behaviorally challenging children is is unending, and what I've realized is that we we have to um, continually uh, reload the data. Do you know what I'm saying? Like keep looking at this. And so when I went to your workshop this summer, I realized that it was really um, telling when I when I realized that you were saying that there's you know. It's just one piece of the the picture. We we really can't get it until we get down to the exact point where we un- actually truly understand the student's concerns and perspective. And until that happens for this child, it's not really going to get better. And part of that is having an environment where they can share it. And another part of it is having skilled adults to recognize it. And it's very complicated because our whole organization, our whole structure as it, and as educators is based on pre-existing um, pre-existing systems that that some of those ideas kind of challenge in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the word that you were probably going for was a little bit of um stereotyping. That if if this is kind of what what people in the organization see as the culture of the of the school and the culture of the community that these kids are on a path it's kind of like a predetermination. I, I felt very much when you were reading the email, Ross, that there were a lot of judgments being made about these children. Um, and it, regardless of their age, we have to remember they are children. Um, and I felt I felt uh, like there were some judgments being passed on these kids before they had even been had the chance to, to choose a different path. Well, um she did say that this is a special ed program for high school students who exhibit significant behavior issues. So we are dealing with a um, certain sliver, slice of the student body 
the fact that they are at high school age and exhibiting significant behavior issues does say that they are at greater risk for incarceration than elementary-aged kids who are significant behavior issues. So it sounds like she's dealing with what some might call, and I don't want to put it this way, but I'm less careful sometimes about being politically correct. Um, sounds like she's dealing with some of the toughest kids in the school system. Right. The part that I was actually glomming on to was the fact that what what she's struggling with is the persuasion part to help people see these kids through certain lenses. Right. But here's what's interesting. Uh, you can persuade till the cows come home. People are, uh, and this is understandable, people are going to have a much harder time listening to anything that's persuasive when they feel that their safety is in jeopardy. And the kids she's talking about here are the, uh, let's see, the, the three or four who brought knives to school and the one who brought a gun to school. Mm-hmm. These are the kids who we are most scared of. And then I find that what happens is people, once a kid has given you something to be scared of, that something that could threaten your own safety or the safety of others, um, I find that people move very rapidly into safety first mode. Right. Safety first. Um, we'll sort the rest out. Safety first, I think. Um, and that sometimes causes them, safety first mode sometimes causes us to do things that actually reduces our safety, not increases it. Um, but the, the part that, to me, that's one point. The other point, though, is that I don't know if kids do well if they can, is going to fly when people are feeling unsafe. But it feels to me like there's a somewhat different angle on this, and that is I don't think we're going to keep this kid from bringing – this is along, a little along the lines, Tom, of what you were saying. I don't think we are going to uh, feel safe until we understand the factors that brought this kid to bring – a knife or a gun to school in the first place. Yeah, the root of it. And now now we're both speaking to safety and to the need and and to considering what courses of action would really be effective at helping us feel more safe. But, you know, in the same way that we need, that if you want a kid to listen to your concern, listening to theirs is the most surefire way to make that happen, because kids who have their concerns heard are more receptive to hearing other people's concerns. Um, I'm wondering about acknowledging the fear of kids who could bring weapons to school as the entry point to having people now start to think about what would really work so that we are feeling safer about those kids. What, what, What do you guys think of that? I think that that, that's the key is that it's kind of like I I try to sometimes, I I know some educators don't like to hear this, but I do like to think about some medical models. And if you treat the symptoms, you're not treating the disease. I want to know exactly what the disease is on a cellular level to the point where I know what makes it function. And so if you understand the child's concerns and perspective, you understand 
a lot more about their world and why they're choosing to do what they did because I mean basic my basic guidance background just said kids are communicating all the time. Yeah. In one way or another, verbally or non-verbally, everything a person does is a form of communication. And so it's one thing for them to communicate it. It's another thing for us to receive their output and hear it and truly understand it. That's really hard to do, Ross. I mean, that's really, isn't that, I mean, we're all kind of fumbling toward helping each other. As, I don't know how to say this, but just as human beings, right? So so if if we consider that that all that we have is each other to help each other, if we can't hear their perspective, we're kind of, kind of stuck in any intervention effective or not really is just kind of basically um basically treating the symptoms not the root cause yeah i agree completely then and it's just like you know the idea it you know to take it down to a smaller scale elementary you know giving a student time out for for something you're you're or, or giving a detention you're treating the symptom, but you're not looking at the root of what's causing it, and that the problem will continue to occur until you can deal with the underlying problem. So if people are how, really concerned about so when people are feeling unsafe, well. sorry, what'd you say? Well, I was saying if, if people are feeling unsure and, and frightened of these children coming back to school, you know, I think if we can it, it, reassure them that we're going to be coming up with the root cause and, and, and coming up with some alternative solutions so that the children don't feel like this is their own this is their only course of action. I think that would go a ways to helping them feel safe. So for example if I mean just to take a wild stab, if there was a, a student who was bringing a knife to school because they had been told by someone out in the out in the neighborhood that they were going to get jumped after school or that they were going to get attacked and they're bringing a, a knife to protect themselves if we can let people know that, you know, the student was bringing something to protect themselves because of this, but now we've, we're taking these steps to protect that child at school so that they don't need to protect themselves anymore and they won't be bringing this to school anymore, then I think that would go a long way to easing people's fears and even making them feel part of the solution. Like if they can empathize and say, well, you know what, if I was in that situation and someone was threatening that, that they were going to hurt me or kill me or if it was my child... Right, like building in some empathy for the situation. It's scary. It is. It's I, uh, very scary. I'm, I'm not going to deny that I don't have the, the parental reflex that, that you were just describing. Yep. I do. Um, um, I have little boys, you know. Well, I just think it's important to recognize, too, that there's the, the bigger political context of the situation because I didn't want my earlier comments to sound critical. Um, I think it's important to recognize that there is a, a significant political context to um, dealing with children who are potentially violent, and frankly, there's also a duty to keep safe the children who are, who are, who are in the school. You know, right. uh, um, the regular other students. Uh, I had an incident where a, a child tried to stab my son in the neck with a pencil in first grade. Um, and and in fact, I would think I was supposed to be on one of your radio shows when it happened, Ross. So <laughs> so I I just I just think that that it's it's uh um. It didn't happen, and the adults handled it and everything. I don't, it's not like I don't feel my son is safe, but the Papa Bear vibe kicks in for all of us, right? And I think we can't deny that either. And then I guess my question, Ross, is do you have any advice for how to balance the two? Well, if you want to deal reasonably with something, often you have to get the emotion out. 
Right. Emotion propels you into action. Too much causes you to overreact or causes you to become paralyzed. A little emotion is a good thing. So you having some emotion about your son being harmed at school is what energized you to make sure that you could would do whatever you could to make sure that it didn't happen again. Right. So that's I would call that good energy, good emotion. Too much energy has you calling an attorney and threatening to sue the school. Right. Too, too, too much, even more than that, has you waiting for the kid who stabbed your son in the neck with the pencil and um, exacting vengeance to teach right. him the lesson. Too little energy, too too little emotion, has you saying either, well, they'll take care of it, or, you know, I just, <laughs> I can't deal with this right now, so I hope they're on top of it. Uh, I would right. Say that that's, I would say that that's too little. Like apathy almost. So, well, almost like feeling paralyzed, like hope, yeah. helplessness, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's not that emotion's a bad thing. It's that emotion can act, is actually a great thing if it energizes you to do the right thing. Uh, emotion gets funky when there's too much of it or too little of it, and, of course, that's a delicate balance. Um, but it's not that emotion itself is bad. Emotion itself is actually probably good. Too much or too little isn't ideal. Yeah, I, th- I think what Same. Tom is, is really getting at is as, as school administrators, we really have a, a very important responsibility in balancing the rights of the individual versus the rights of another individual or the rights of the group at large. And yep. And it can be very difficult to negotiate a lot of the time because on the one hand, there can often be that parental um, emotional reaction if there's a, a safety concern at the school, and yet as collaborative problem solvers, we we want to be patient and and also be empathetic and and be dealing with the students the concerns of the aggressor. Let's say just to use that word, if there is a situation that's related to safety, and so it it can be really important just to to try to um, just diffuse a little bit that level of emotion and ensure people that, you know, we of course we are attending to everybody's safety. And that's why it sometimes it is appropriate. I think we've talked about this before, that there sometimes can be times when we do remove a student from the school or from their classroom or from a recess break or something like that while we're working on the situation to ensure that safety but it's not it's it's very different from removing a child from any of those situations as a punitive measure right it's it's let's all take a break let's let's um just press pause on the the, the problematic situation while we're working on the solution because some of those some of this can take you know days weeks and it might not be safe to just keep sending the child back into that situation until we have a solution that we think is going to work how much do you both and I don't, you don't say you don't want to answer it if you don't want to answer it but how much do you both um have liability concerns on your minds when you're dealing with safety issues and to what degree does that hovering issue potentially impact your response it's always there it's uh it is it's uh, i would agree that it's balancing it's it's about uh you know just knowing 
kind of knowing the child, knowing the situation, knowing the district, knowing the building, knowing the community, which is why I found as a principal, this is my third year at this school. So it's my fourth year as a principal. And as you remember, Ross, I met you at the Lafayette School, and we had way bigger safety concerns at Lafayette than we do at my current school. Um, because it was a, a, a an inner city school with uh, 83% free and reduced lunch, whereas my building right now is much lower. Um, not that free and reduced lunch indicates behaviors, but it gives us a sense of the socioeconomic situation. And, and uh, I do think that 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 um, when I'm dealing with it here, just it's, it is different because I'm not only thinking about the safety, but I'm thinking about the political context of every decision. How is how is what I'm doing going to be perceived if it were on the front page of a newspaper? <laughs> and spun the wrong way. Right. Right. You have to think about those things, and it's sad to say. And so what I try to do is I try to stop kind of the, the, the energy and just think about the kid. What does this kid need and what's going on? And then I just say a little prayer that it's all going to work out, and I look at the policies <laughs> first and, uh, and make a decision based on everything I know about kids, and generally they've all turned out pretty good so far, you know? Right, and I think, like, I don't know, I can't speak for other districts, but I think um, the district where I work, the the outlook is, cha- not the outlook, the, the perspective, the lenses are shifting a little bit to where we are looking at the whole child, looking at all of the circumstances, that, that you know, zero tolerance doesn't exist, even though um, there is, there are certain, well, I shouldn't say, it's hard to explain it, we have we have school wide codes of conduct that explain our expectations and um, you know different types of interventions that can take place. But they're they go they're school by school. There are certain things that across the district are you know we put in our code of conduct that obviously weapons, drugs, things like that are are not taught are not um, our schools are free of those things. But in terms of the interventions that we take, we have guidance like it's. This might be an appropriate response, but there's also this range of responses that you can look at. And so I think that there's a lot of support at a district level for administrators like myself who work on things, you know, one student at a time, one case at a time, um, working to teach the student, and there's there's definitely support for that. So um, I that's never first and foremost in my mind of when I'm working with a student, like what... Um, what what would it look like on the front page? I think for me it's more really listening to the parents' concerns on each side and understanding what it is that they're afraid of for their child and then and then going on that and, and trying to honor and respect their, their very valid concerns about their own kids. You know, it's interesting. Um, every once in a while I've had to think about how my actions would look in a newspaper as a professional, and um, one of the conclusions I've come to is that we have no control over how it's going to look in the newspaper. Um, uh, Having been quoted in newspapers (laughs) many times and a high percentage of those times inaccurately, Mm. um, and having seen things in newspapers um, and knowing the backstory and seeing that the backstory wasn't told and that all that really was in the newspaper was the inflammatory, sensationalistic stuff. And not saying that that's all that newspapers are about, but having um, some intimate knowledge of that, um, 
I've come to the conclusion that one actually has very little control over how one is portrayed in the news. Um, and here's the nice thing about that. That's actually rather freeing. Because <laughs> it basically says, all right, well, you know what? Since I have no control over that, I might as well just just do the right thing, and the chips will fall where they will with the newspaper. Um, we'll leave the newspapers to politicians, and they don't have much control over it either. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and I think it's it's great. Uh, that was really nice for you to say, Ross, because I do think that, again, I, um, I would agree with you that you have to kind of, as I was saying, you have to put the kid first. But um, I think it's also good to acknowledge the uh, the systemic pressures, and, and I guess what I'm saying as oh, an educator yeah. on this panel is to encourage principals, superintendents, and all people out there who care about children from the heart level to put that away, and and, and but try to balance it too. And I, and I think that this has been a great panel because it is a very complex topic, safety, and uh, and ironically, one that I have very recently dealt with at length on multiple occasions at my school. So it's been great to talk about it in a way because it's always good for us all to remember that we're all dealing with this, this, the, these same issues together. And that, that, uh, um, again, as I've always found, if we put the kids first, things generally kind of work out. They do. And since you don't have control of the other part anyways, you might Let as well. Um, um, what was I going to say? Yeah. I'm ju I just find that doing the right thing by the kid is your safest bet. Yeah. Because then, you know, <clears throat> what what I like to think about is if if someone is going to question me and I have to defend my actions to a parent or uh, somebody in senior management, um, if you can demonstrate that you were putting the student first, there's there's no way you can be really in the wrong, right? If if you can demonstrate that what you were doing was in the best interest of the student, right. You know, they, they, there's no refuting that. <laughs> so. Although it's interesting because I think we are still at a point societally. Or actually, I wouldn't call it a tipping point because that's cliche. But I think we've seen the dangers of playing it safe and going the punitive, um, we'll teach him a lesson, <laughs> We're going to take a hard line here. Um, I think that that used to be a relatively safe play politically. Used to be a relatively safe play. It might still be in terms of liability. But I actually sense that there is um, movement in the opposite direction. I think, and this is a political statement, but here we go. We, we've seen what rushing into taking a powerful response, how that has backfired uh, on some nations um, in recent memory when patriotism was being questioned for rushing into something when, in fact, we would have been a whole lot better off if we hadn't rushed into it um, and hadn't found political favor in rushing to power and rushing to conflict. Um, I think that's actually shifting slightly. Uh, we only have about 30 seconds left, but what do you guys think real quickly? I hope it is shifting, and thank you for everything that you do to make it shift. Well, that's a, that's 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 um, okay. I'll take that. 
Carol? <laughs> uh, I'll just say ditto. That was a nice conversation today, guys. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. Thank you, guys, and thank you for participating in the program today, and we'll be back next month with another educator's panel. Thanks to Tom and Carol. Have a good day. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.